This episode was brought to you by our Patreon supporters. Greg Bench, Trey Whetstone, Amy Swan, Gilman, Joel Robertson, and ooh, Blake from Midweek Matinee. Thank you all. Now on to the episode. Welcome to another episode of Father and Son Watch Horror Movies. I'm your co-host, The Father, a.k.a. Pastor Matt, a.k.a. Matt Rawlings. I am joined, as always, by my trusty sidekick. Jackson the Son and Dad, I gotta tell you, I like this movie. It was scary. <laughs> we are a spoiler podcast. We do spoil the movies we discuss. And we are kicking off our Halloween season franchise review, and we kick it off with Scream from 1996. Not scared, are you? Someone has taken their love of fear one step too far. Uh, we know you're not the killer. Solving this mystery... Everybody's a suspect! ...is going to be murder. Who are you? The question is, where am I? We all go a little mad sometimes. Scream, the new thriller from Wes Craven, rated R. And to do this right, we'll need some help. So please welcome first-time guest, Ricky Irvin. How you doing, Ricky? Hey, guys. How are you? Doing great. Doing great. So, Scream. The IMDb synopsis reads, A year after the murder of her mother, a teenage girl is terrorized by a new killer who targets the girl and her friends by using horror films as part of a deadly game. Jackson, that's not... I, they may have watched the movie. Mm-hmm. They may have seen the trailer. I'll give them that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, a new killer. Okay. We are a spoiler podcast. All right. So, Ricky, let's start with you. When did you first see Scream? Oh, my God. When it first came out. <laughs> I, was, oh. I watched the show a ton. This was, it was 96. And I'm thinking either the end of my junior year or the beginning of my senior year. So, I'm old. But. I was watching the show last night. I was re-watching it. And it's just amazing. All of, like, I'm sure Jackson was probably watching it, laughing at fashion and laughing at everything. And I was oh, like, yeah. yeah, I oh, have yeah. that. Yeah, I wore my hair like that. <laughs> oh. Yeah, that was the It show back then. That was that was amazing. Absolutely. And so, Jackson, when did you first see Scream? Uh, I don't remember. I think I've always been aware of it. I've always been aware of Ghostface, uh, same way I've been aware of Michael Myers. So I don't remember the first time I actually watched the movie. Uh, but I do know that I got the chance to see it last Saturday in theaters and I saw it earlier today on streaming. So I pretty much know this movie beat for beat now. And I have no regrets about that. Oh, that's awesome. Everybody knows the mask. Everyone knows the mask, and which we'll talk about the mask because there's a whole backstory behind that sucker. But um, I saw it on opening night. So December 20th, 1996, I was living in Marietta, Ohio at the time, helping to I was working for a congressman at the time. I was 24 years old. I was helping shut down a congressional office. I saw it on opening night and I was so blown away by it. After working all day Saturday and Saturday night, I went back Sunday afternoon and watched it on a matinee. So I saw it twice on opening weekend. I bought it on VHS. I bought it on DVD. I own it on Blu-ray. Oh, I love this movie so much. So let's talk about the screenplay and the plot. Of course, Kevin Williamson, 
um, wrote this. This was his first published screenplay. He had sold one before that. He had sold one called Killing Mrs. Tingle, uh, but it was in development hell. He wrote this. The original title was Scary Movie. Um, and so he writes this. There, He's staying at a friend's house because he's three months behind on his rent. He was convinced he was going to be evicted. And so he's house-sitting, and he watches a documentary on the Gainesville Ripper in Gainesville, Florida. Freaks him out, calls his friend to try to calm him down. His friend and he start talking about their favorite scary movies. They talk about Halloween. They talk about prom night, all that kind of stuff. He turns around and in three days writes the screenplay for Scream. A bidding war ensues between Oliver Stone and the Weinsteins. And boom, we get Scream, which I personally think is a brilliant screenplay. Ricky, what about you? It's amazing. And it's still one of these that, I mean, I'm sure you guys are, you guys are much more buffs than me, but I've seen a ton of scary movies, horror flicks. I'm a true junkie, but Mm. there's really nothing like this one. I mean, it's really like, it's, it's incomparable in a lot of different ways. Um, As far as like, it was true to its time, as far as the nineties, it was, it it went different ways in, in different, you know, the first for many, and, but you can compare it to a lot of like the Hitchcocks and things like this. And as far as like, even as far as the killing scene, killing mm. off the, one, a, a huge star in the first few moments. Yes. And, I mean, there's a lot of things that you can go back and just rewatch. And I was like, I forgot how amazing this movie was. Absolutely. Jackson, what about you? Kevin Williamson screenplay, the plot. What do you think? Brilliant. Brilliant screenplay. Uh, and I love the fact that it was called Scary Movie originally because we all know what happened yes. to that that title, that franchise. Yeah. But um, and you can kind of see how I mean, they they talk about scary movie several times in the in the uh, in Scream itself. They, they say that phrase. And I was like, oh, that's kind of funny that, you know, later on, Scary Movie would become its own franchise. But um, I love it. I love the way that it it has intrigue and it is a lot like Hitchcock. It has that Janet mm-hmm. Lee moment at the beginning of the movie just like psycho and it's funny because drew barrymore is on the front of the poster she's got that coveted and drew barrymore you know credit where you're if you're at the end or the beginning at the credits you are the biggest star and she she is she has top credit she's on the front of the poster yet she's only in the movie for 10 minutes which i think is crazy but um it just it i'm sure it tricked a lot of people even though the same thing had been pulled in 1960 in the 1960s but I love how there's so many red herrings. I mean, there there have to be ten red herring killers in this mm-hmm. movie. Right. You're you're never sure who the killer is, mm-hmm. and at the end, even even when you when you start to see things unfolding, you're really not sure exactly how it went down until it's explained to you. So it's that's another tie to Hitchcock's uh, Psycho. It's it, they had to explain the whole thing at the end because it was so revolutionary at the time. Exactly. But. I know we're going to be spoiling the heck out of this movie, yep. uh, but I don't want to get into that right just yet. But uh, the screenplay is just fantastic. Absolutely. And so, but Jackson, I, you know, you were talking the first few moments that with Drew Barrymore being the huge mm-hmm. name that she is, that draws so many people in. And like so many movies, they kind of drag on for a little bit and then it gets good. Within the first few seconds, I mean, you're hooked. 
there's there's like action after action after action and oh, then yeah. you're like well how can it get any better from here or what in the world's going to happen now <laughs> definitely yeah. Yeah, that first, that first scene has so much tension in it. Right. Uh, it. It hooks you right from the beginning. As soon as as the caller says, I want to know who I'm looking at, right. you, you, oh, you chills just go down your spine. <laughs> exactly. And I feel like it's a lot like those Hitchcock movies like Rope or whatever that hooks you from the beginning with a violent act. And then you got to see how it plays out. I think it's just amazing. Well, and they do a great thing in that. Okay, so, yeah, like I said, I saw this on opening night. Um, the, the girlfriend I was with at the time about twisted my hand off during that opening scene. Um, and so, but then they switched to Nev Campbell, who was a TV star at the time because of party of five. And you're thinking, is she going to die too? Right. Because it was just boom, boom. And it was no holes barred. Here it goes. And the cool thing about that opening scene, which I, I agree, Ricky, it, it's iconic it's amazing. It's the best opening scene probably since when a stranger calls uh, with, you know, have you checked the children, which mm -hmm. was a Kevin Williamson said was a big influence. But, you know, <clears throat> by starting that way, it was actually Drew Barrymore's idea to play Casey. She was originally cast as Sidney Prescott. Yes. And she said, no, 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 no. She calls like five weeks before filming. And she's like, no, I want to play Casey because no one will see it coming. Right. That was incredible. That was Absolutely. Brilliant. Absolutely. Yeah, that wasn't Kevin's idea. That wasn't Wes's idea. That was you know Drew Barrymore's funny? idea. Is I looked up, like I was Googling different things about the movie. Mm -hmm. And if you Google, so many people didn't realize that was Drew Barrymore. They were like, wow. who's the blonde in the beginning of the movie? Wow. And that was one of the first things that popped up because they're thinking it can't be Drew Barrymore because she she dies off in the first like 10 minutes of the flick. But yeah, that was a lot of people weren't aware that that was actually Drew Barrymore. And there was a lot of people that didn't realize that that was her face in the, wow. in the front of the poster. Wow. Right. I didn't know that. Wow. I just always, because I recognized her. Right. Um, you know, of course, I grew up with her. I mean, I saw right. E.T. in the theater, you know, all that kind of but stuff. A lot of, new, a lot of the younger generation, I guess, you know, I mean, like, not like us, Matt, but like maybe Jacksons are younger, like mm -hmm. Taylor-ish, kind of, maybe not so aware of who, what an icon Drew Barrymore was or is. Right. Um, but she, she was Drew Barrymore, and she died off in the first few minutes. But now that it's it still comes back every now and then, and people still watching it, and people don't understand who that is or who that wow. was. Wow, wow! I well, I, I had seen her in person. Um, she went to a lot of the same parties I went to. She was always at what's called the Bat Lady parties. Um, when I went to those um, with Jason Priestley and Troy Hinton back in the late '80s, so, but she's got that Barrymore face i mean right. lionel barrymore john barrymore you know if you watch old movies you couldn't mistake her but yeah i guess people who were in their teens in the 90s i was 24 they yeah you're probably right they probably had no idea you know other than maybe poison ivy or some right. skinamax movie like that who in the world right. she was so <laughs> did it shock you jackson or did you already know was it already part of your lore i already knew i had seen the image of her hanging from the tree Okay. Uh, I think that was imprinted into my brain. I didn't know exactly how it would play out because it had been a while. I, when I watched it in theaters on Saturday, 
it was like watching it again for the first time because I was it was surround sound. It was on the big screen. I was right. excited. So it was a lot more impactful when I watched that scene, especially the part where she's being dragged on the ground and her parents can hear her through the phone. Yes. That really just like made my stomach turn. I was like, oh, that's awful. And, and, uh, and then, sorry, go ahead. She's yelling her mom and she can't get it out. Yeah, because like she's that. been stabbed in the throat. Oh, <laughs> yes. awful, awful. So yeah, oh. it definitely hit me more. I, I mean, I, I knew what was going to happen. I, and I even knew who the killers were. Uh, because it's kind of obvious. If you know and you watch it from the beginning with right. the twist in mind, you can tell. But uh, um, that that scene was way more impactful this most recent viewing. And mm. I can definitely see how if you were a kid and you loved Drew Barrymore, you'd seen her in you know romantic comedies or whatever. And then you see her get absolutely brutally slaughtered on screen. Yeah. That could be traumatizing. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the MPA yeah. had many, 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 many problems with that scene. They actually right. had an NC-17 nine times. They had to go back to the MPA nine times to get an R rating. And part of it was that opening scene with her hanging from the tree. They hated exactly. that. They I hated it. I that's where they speeded it up. Yeah, the editor got the idea that if we speed it up, then they won't have as much of a problem right. with it. And so that's what, that's what he did. He just made it creepier. It, yeah, it did. It absolutely <laughs> did. Oh, man. So, oh, gosh. Um, so we'll talk about our favorite scenes and everything later, but let's talk about the mask. Uh, Ricky brought up, or let's talk about the mask, the killer's mask, ghost face. Um, so it wasn't until today when I was watching Ryan Turek's Still Screaming, all that kind of stuff, that... Kevin Williamson, he didn't really describe the mask that much in the screenplay. He did refer to it as Ghostface, but he didn't really describe the mask or the outfit. And the first meeting he had with Wes Craven, Wes Craven goes, well, but okay, Kevin, what does the mask look like and what's he wearing? Because if you're trying to hide his identity, if we see his hands, we see his feet, we, we have to. And Kevin Williamson's response in their very first meeting was, not my problem. <laughs> you're the director it's your problem now i've got my paycheck right. and so they were touring you know locations in santa rosa california which is an amazing place because that's where they shot hitchcock's shadow of a doubt and so forth and they're they're scouting locations in santa rosa and in what would end up becoming rose mcgowan's character's house and dewey's character's house i guess um they were going through this house. It was owned by an elderly woman. Her, her late husband had collected masks. They walk upstairs into a bedroom, and there's the ghost face mask hanging off of a bed. Yeah. And they're like, that's it. That's the mask. And they grabbed it, and they, and they finally tracked down who made it, who owned it. It was a small company in New England. And they naively said... Um, what are you going to call it? They said Ghostface. They smartly copyrighted that. That was smart. Um, but then they said, um, we'll take $100. Wow. <laughs> so for 100 bucks, <laughs> so. we got Ghostface. So, Ricky, what do you think of the mask? It's, I mean, the mask is still, I don't care if you've not seen the movie, if you are even like, 
Tegan's age, nine-year-old, she's like, wasn't that from a movie? I mean, you know what the mask is. Mm -hmm. And kids still, like Halloween, kids still dress up like that. I mean, they just know it's a scary mask. And, like, the whole history behind it, trying to fight for the the rights to the mask and and everything like that. I mean, and I've... (laughs) Man, I don't think I've ever told you this. Taylor hates scary movies. My oldest hates scary movies. Uh-huh. But when she was little, you can you can tease her about this. She used to beg to watch the movie Scream. Wow. Too little to even say it. She would say, Cream. Watch Cream. <laughs> and but she would watch it over and over. And now for some reason, you know, being the number one mom that I am, I would let her watch it. <laughs> but she um she hates masks now. So I, I broke my kid. So (laughs) yes, I mean, the mask is absolutely, I think the movie wouldn't have been what it was had it not been for that mask. Absolutely. Especially when you see what they were considering, all the different designs they were considering, they were pretty, pretty awful. Uh, Jackson, what about you? What do you think? I love it. I think it's it's iconic, and uh, it's so clever of them to get that mask and then call the movie Scream, because obviously the mask was inspired by the painting, Scream, um, which I thought was great. And uh, I I love how you wouldn't even think to call it Ghostface. I don't think it looks like a ghost, but then Rose McGowan in the movie, Tatum, calls him Ghostface. Uh, so then I guess he's Ghostface from now on. Yeah. I think it would have been cooler if you call him the Scream Killer because that he's he's wearing a Scream mask, he's in Scream, he's a Scream Killer. But right. I guess it makes sense, you know, call him Ghostface. It's more iconic. you got to give him a nickname. Just like everybody only knows uh, the child's play dummy, you know, the, the doll as Chucky, even right. though that wasn't the killer's name, uh, yeah. but they call him Chucky. So, I mean, it's the same It's the same kind of thing. I think it's iconic. They really, it's hard to make something that can go on to be a pop culture icon, but they did it so flawlessly here. Mm-hmm. And good on them for getting it that cheap. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, and here's something I didn't know before today either. Uh, Bob Weinstein of the notorious Weinstein clan. Um, Bob Weinstein, who was the head of Dimension, was getting the dailies from Scream. He saw the first couple days of shooting with Drew Barrymore and Ghostface called Wes Craven and said, this isn't scary. This is terrible. That mask is awful. I want to see all your other designs. We may need to make a change, which is industry talk for Wes Craven. You're about to be fired. Um, And so Wes Craven's editor got the idea. Hold on. Let's hurry up. Let's shoot the entire scene with Drew. Let's go ahead and edit it together. And let's send it to him. So two days later, they finish the five-day shoot with Drew. They send the 13-minute clip from in order, from beginning to end, with Drew Barrymore. Bob Weinstein watches it, calls Wes Craven, and goes, It's brilliant! What do I know? And hangs <laughs> up. <laughs> Perfect. And so there you go. Um, yeah, I love the mask. I love the outfit. I think it worked. Um Here's something about that opening scene as well that I didn't know until today. Drew Barrymore um, was taking the phone and being the actress that she is, she was actually dialing 911. Well, they hadn't disconnected the phone. She was actually dialing local 911 (laughs) over and over again. And so like 2 o'clock in the morning, the cops show up and they're like, what's going on here? 
they had traced, you know that? <laughs> yes, they traced the call to the house. They show up, and Wes Craven's like, "What's going on? The cops are here!" And they're, and then that's when the FX guy's like, "Oh, I forgot to disconnect the phone." <laughs> yeah, she been take after take. She was actually calling nine one one and screaming in the phone that she was oh, being killed. No. that's great. <laughs> oh man, and of course we get that iconic voice. Mm-hmm. over yes. the phone done by roger jackson um roger jackson still gets people walking up to him goes i love you and scream where can i get one of those voice modulators he's right. like that doesn't exist that's my real voice <laughs> <laughs> and it's like and it was wes craven's idea who told him when he got on set they auditioned hundreds of voice actors they picked him they said he said i never want you to meet the actors And he is actually on the phone interacting with them. That is not because typically if you're on a film set and I've been on many, it's typically a PA behind the camera reading the lines. No, Roger Jackson was out in a trailer with a cell phone calling Drew Barrymore, calling Nev Campbell and talking on the phone and refusing to ever meet them. And it freaked them out. Wow, that's scary. Yeah, even when he did one of the documentaries for Scream, he refused to be shown in person. They black him out and just have his voice. He has still to this day never met Nev Campbell. Oh, really? That's correct. He has not met... Well, I did hear that he hadn't met um, uh, Drew Barrymore until they completely finished the scene. But I also heard that in order to keep her in character... Apparently there was, I don't know if this is true or not, but there was like psycho around there, like lighting dogs on fire. Yes. Drew he yes. kept reminding her and like drawing pictures and showing her pictures and stuff. And like Wes Craven, being Wes Craven, he, um, Drew Barrymore and he had had a conversation where she was talking about a news story she had read, whether it was back in L.A. or locally, there in Santa Rosa, about some guy that was setting dogs on fire. And she's a dog lover. She's got rescue animals. And so she started crying every time she said this to Wes Craven. So when she had trouble on the set for those five days, Wes Craven would be like, Drew, I'm getting my lighter out. (laughs) (laughs) And she just started I know she just started falling, and so yeah, yeah, he did do that. the The guy with a reputation of being a professor and being the nice guy, and was because you know, yep, Wes Craven. Yeah, he just Wes Craven. I mean, he look, he had a you know, he he was a strange guy, an Ohioan from Cleveland. Up in a strict Baptist home, went to Wheaton College, an evangelical Christian college, went to John Hopkins, was a professor, then went to work as a PA in New York City for films, and, and he did work on porn films, and then he went to, did Last House on the Left and, and, and stuff like that. And yes, he was very professorial, but yeah, he could go there. And he went there in the original, because Jackson and I, you remember this, Jackson, when we were talking about the hills have eyes, mm-hmm. original script was the baby died, right? And he was going to, but the cast rebelled. 
Yeah, and, and in cor- including who? Michael Barrymore, <laughs> the entire yep. like you know cannibal family, the cast who played the cannibal family, were like don't you kill that baby? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and and so he backed off, but he was originally going to do it. So, yep, that was Wes Craven. Rest in peace. Um, God rest his soul. But he was one of those people I never got to meet him. I really wish I had. But, man, you could not find a single person in Hollywood that would say a bad word about the guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, they all loved him. So, all right. We could talk about this all night, but favorite scenes. Because, Ooh. yeah, this movie is packed full of them. I didn't know till today they shot all of Henry Winkler's scenes in one day. I, I believe it. <laughs> yep. And okay. it, it was I his idea to grab the scissors. Go ahead, Ricky. Go ahead. No, I have to say that I've always thought every time, you know, the 73 times that I've watched the, the film, I thought, that janitor looks an awful lot. Yep. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I was like, I was watching clips and like little, you know, inserts and stuff and facts. And I was like, oh, that was Wes Craven dressed like yep. <laughs> That is Wes Craven as Fred the janitor. He did not want to do it. That was the Weinstein's idea. You put the whole outfit on and do it. He That's fought against it. That's such an Easter egg. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. The, worst, the worst parts of Wes Craven movies are the Weinstein's fault. I didn't really like that, <laughs> that little cameo because I thought it was too on the nose. He's literally wearing the entire outfit. If it was, if totally it was a little more... Cheesy. I know, but if it was a little more subtle, I think it would have been better. But right. here's the thing: they also made him do the tongue in the in the the, uh, the telephone in Nightmare on Elm Street. Nightmare on Elm Street, and and West well, Craven that was that. actually Bob Shea, but it was also uh, studio okay, head. Bob Shea insisted on the tongue coming out of the telephone and Nancy getting stuck in the oatmeal the on the stairs. The toothpaste, t- yeah. Uh, I uh, those are the cheesiest parts of of those movies, and I'm yep. sorry, I don't. I I think that the Freddy Krueger janitor thing was a little too far maybe if he just had the fedora or just the 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 um sweater right. but instead he's got the sweater the fedora it's west craven and he calls him fred so it's like it's right. a little on the nose right. uh but we're done right there is one one thing done right whenever casey is talking to the killer on the phone uh she says well i like the first nightmare on street but the rest were crap because yeah. what's crazy? Yeah, the rest the first one. yeah. <laughs> that one. That is a good. That's a good. At a line, and that's in the original script. Mm-hmm. And Wes Craven originally told Kevin Williamson, "I want that out because it makes me look like a narcissist." Because I directed the first one, and Kevin goes, "No, you also directed the seventh one, Wes, and that's included in that." <laughs> and Wes went, yeah. "Oh." Okay. <laughs> not not part of the original continuity though. I would say New Nightmare. No, but he he well, Kevin Williams said he included New Nightmare that he does not like New Nightmare. So Oh, I uh, love New Nightmare. I do too, but Kevin didn't. So um so let's talk about our favorite scene. Now, but well, before we get there, I do want to talk about Henry Winkler. Yeah, Henry Winkler had told Wes Craven, not only had he never done a horror movie, he had never seen a horror movie. Oh, come on, Fonzie. You know you've seen a horror movie. never seen a horror movie. You're talking about, you got to remember that Henry Winkler is a Yale graduate. That's true. I mean, this is a highly, you know, intelligent guy, all that kind of stuff. But they watch horror flicks, too. (laughs) I know, I know. But he claimed he never had. So he said he was too much of a wuss. 
but then he gets on set and he's talking to Wes Craven and you know, basically by that time, Henry Winkler had, had transitioned over into directing and he, he he didn't have much of a career in acting. So he took the gig, even though he wasn't keen on being in a horror movie. But then he improvised the scissor scene. He's the one who grabbed the scissors. And Wes Craven says when he holds those scissors up to that kid's throat, that kid's reaction is real. Right. That was. Oh, not- yeah. It's scary. Yeah. The kid freaked out. He thought Fonz is going to cut my throat. (laughs) (laughs) But what a way to go, right? If you had to die, that would be the way to go. Have the Fonz sweat your throat with with scissors. That'd be awesome. I also love when he's messing around with the mask. And he's like, you know, he thinks he's in there alone. And he's like messing around trying to be scary. Another red herring, I think. I think they're they yes. just for a second we're trying to set you up to think maybe he's the killer, but yeah. then of course he's dispatched in that very same right. scene. There are a lot of red herrings. We could talk about those forever. Because did you recognize uh, the name on the costume when Dewey brings out the costume and says they're sold in every five and dime in California? Did you see the title of the costume? No. That's Craven inserted as a red herring. I didn't see it. Father death. Oh, because of Sydney's oh, father? Because they were implying that the dad had disappeared. Nice. So he no, was I a suspect. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there there have got to be there are like 20 red herrings. It's like right. a it's like a Giallo dad. It's like a it's like oh, an Argento yeah. movie. You got Randy. Randy is set up at some point because he works at the video store. He knows a lot about horror. I do too. I think he's great. <laughs> Jamie Kennedy, he's great. You got Principal Fonzie, who just for a second is set up to be be the killer. Sydney's yeah. dad is a long running one. The police chief, even Dewey in one part, when he takes uh Gail Weathers out for a walk, yep. there's a little bit of sus- like suspense right. music behind it. So you're thinking oh, is he gonna kill her so everybody is a suspect it's just like randy says literally everybody is a suspect in the movie and i think that makes it all the all the more exciting just like prom night another movie we reviewed <laughs> exactly. yep just like prom night so all right guys so here we go favorite scene do you have a favorite scene ricky you're the guest do you have a favorite scene in scream and we're a spoiler podcast you can talk about whatever you want it is so hard to choose but i'll be honest i really do like the part where it's near the beginning and sid is still just at her house and um casey's or not casey but um her friend tatum's supposed to be on her way over and she falls asleep yeah. at the house yeah and then she answers the phone she's like i'm running late i'll be there and then she answers the phone and then it starts right i really like that that her, was always like the most suspenseful out of out of the whole movie, honestly, for me. And her great line about how horror movies suck and they're always running upstairs right. instead of outside. And, and, and watch what does she, she do? She <laughs> runs upstairs. Yeah. And absolutely. Then she doesn't believe him. She's like, well, what am I doing? What am I doing right now? <laughs> right. She starts to pretend to pick her nose right. and everything else. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. That is a great, great scene. Jackson, what about you, buddy? I love that scene, but my favorite part of the movie in general is Matthew Lillard. I love Stu. I think I he's know. hilarious. And uh, him and him and Randy are the funniest yeah, the characters. But uh, I love the scene near the end where uh, where Stu has just been stuck up by Billy several times. And he goes, oh, you he stole goes, my scene. Go ahead. Go ahead. I, he, he goes, I'm feeling a little woozy here. Me and too. I love that. I love, I love that scene. It. 
And then when he's on the phone and he's like, my parents are going to so kill me. Bad. I love that. Oh my Which goodness. was ad-libbed. I can it. There was another in that I'm with you. And in that scene, there was another line that Matthew Lillard had lit, which is weird to see Matthew Lillard interviewed because he's the exact opposite of his character. Right. He's like really introspective and and really soft spoken. He's not that guy at all. Not a shaggy at all. No, he's not shaggy (laughs) at all. And there's that scene where Skeet Ulrich hits him with the phone. And he turns around like, you hit me with the phone, you blank. That was at too, because Skeet Ulrich wasn't supposed to hit him with the phone. It slipped out of his hand because it was so slippery with fake blood. And it hits him in the head, and he literally turns around. He goes, I wasn't even at living. I was looking at Skeet going, you hit me in the head with the phone, you blank. I love it. I'll be honest. I agree. I think him and Randy are my favorites out of oh, the yeah. they They kind of bring an added... Just when you think you're like so scared and this movie is like, what's going to happen next? And then there's like that comedy relief. <laughs> oh, man. And my, my friend uh, Carter, who you know, dad, he went to STEM with me. He met Matthew Lillard at a convention oh. and he had, he had him sign his ghost face mask. And he said he was the nicest guy ever. Very tall, he said. Surprisingly yeah. tall in real life. Uh, but he said he was really nice. Yeah, that's all I've heard is how much people just love him to death. And mm-hmm. and Matthew Lillard um, was very upset he didn't survive to be in the sequel. But we'll get to it next week. But he is in the sequel. I've... Yeah, I guess technically, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's an extra. Yeah. He's a student just walking around but because he Dread. loved it so much. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. I mean, we could go on and on about these scenes. There's so many great ones. Randy giving the rules has become iconic. Yep. Uh, I love those. I do, too. When he's watching Halloween, he's commenting on it while Ghostface is behind him. Oh, yeah. And he says, Jamie, Jamie, look behind you. And his name <laughs> is Jamie Kennedy. And the 30-second delay. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Oh, and, and I got to give props to the guy who played the cameraman. I think it was Earl right. Brown. He got the crap kicked out of him in that movie. Uh, he was, when they do that scene where, you know, he falls on the, the from the roof of the van, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> he actually was thrown from the van into the fence. Oh, that wow. actually, was that really him? That was him. <laughs> He said that it wasn't supposed to, he was supposed to be tied to the top. It came loose. He tried to grab hold of the windshield wipers to keep him on the van. And he flew into the fence. Oh, no. A poor guy, man. I mean, he just got the crap kicked out of him. And and I'll give him credit. He said, you know, he said, when I got the script, my agent sent me the script. I was like, I was in pretty good shape. And I'm reading that they're always making these fat jokes. I'm like, what am I going to do? I got six weeks before this. So he said right. he did nothing but drink beer and eat potato chips for the next six weeks to get right. And that's what I was going to say. He doesn't look that overweight. Gail was like, I know you're yeah. 50 pounds overweight. He does not look 50 pounds overweight. She no. gave him crap the whole time. And that was part of the, I think that was funny, too. Mm-hmm. Like, he oh, just yeah. kind of, like, plugged along. Yeah, <laughs> and Courtney, alive. Courtney Cox is amazing in this movie, yeah. just as, as the jerky oh. reporter. We've We're, all seen people like that, and, and she plays it perfectly. We will talk about the the cast and characters here in a second, but let's talk about the reveal. Mm. Let's talk about the killer reveal. And I know that sometimes Daryl Taylor from the Taylor Network of Podcasts from Retro Movie Geek listens to this. I know, Daryl, 
how how inventive two killers i get it daryl whatever anyway were you taken surprised the first time you saw scream at the reveal of the killers ricky i you know jackson said it before you kind of see it and i'm one of those geeks that i kind of like I watch, and I know it's not always the person, like, in the disguise or whatever, Mm -hmm. but I watch for, like, hints as far as, like, mannerisms and things like this and, like, other little subtle hints as to anything being said. I kind of saw it. I knew Uh, if it wasn't both of them, it was one of them, kind of. That was my thinking. I wasn't shocked that Billy was one of them. I was shocked that Stu, that there were two of them. I knew they were BFFs and like Stu was kind of his like, I don't know, I want to say flunky, but you know, like they were always together. Someone had to know, they, they had to be kind of like, if he wasn't in on it, he kind of knew, had to know something about it. Gotcha. Gotcha. Jackson, what about you? Well, I can't remember the first time I watched it. I kind of, I've kind of always knew, knew about the twist, but if I were to place myself in my shoes, not knowing about it. I would say the same thing. It's obvious that Billy, at least, is a killer. I mean, he is so obviously set up. He's he's really creepy. Um, but they try to throw you off his scent, for, like in the second act. They're like, oh, yes. well, his, his phone was clean and whatever. Right. But here's the thing. You can definitely tell that, that it was two killers and that Stu and Billy were. If you are eagle-eyed enough to, to see it, especially... So two things. First of all, the fountain scene, when they're all gathered around the fountain, like the friends opening, right. and they're talking about the murders of Casey and her boyfriend. They're, uh, they're, they're talking, and they're so nonchalant about it, but there's one part where uh, Stu goes, well, I didn't murder anybody, and Billy goes, nobody said you did, buddy, and he says, thanks, but And the, the, there's something right. in their eyes where they look a little too comfortable with it. Right. Shut up. Quit talking about I it. I know, exactly. Right. And, and then... If you look, whenever they're in ghost face disguise, and I know, like, my, if I were just a general moviegoer, I would just think, oh, they're just stuntmen. They're different sizes. But I think Wes Craven knew. I think it's supposed to be Stu and Billy. They're different heights. So, of mm-hmm. course, they're different heights when they're in. I think there were two different stuntmen. One was about Matthew Lillard, Lillard's size, and one was about Skeet Ulrich, Ulrich's size. Mm-hmm. And uh, you can definitely tell they're two different people. And they are different yeah. in their mannerisms. I feel like Stu is a little less vicious than Billy. Billy's the one that killed Casey in the beginning. Yeah. And if I'm I not agree. Wrong, I think right. Stu is the one that kills Tatum, right? And he seems a little more uh, clumsy. That's supposed to be his girlfriend. I mean, yeah. We're talking about two completely, like, they're unhinged, obviously. But I did not see the whole, like, Billy having issues with her mom. Yeah. Because of that. I that was a surprise that. to me as well, yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um I I was surpri- I wasn't surprised by Billy, although, you know, Kevin Williamson has said that in his original screenplay, one of the reasons, Jackson, what you brought up was when they bring Billy in originally and clear him, that was him trying to clear Billy out of people's mm-hmm. minds. That was, you know, that was his trying to get beyond that. And so yeah, I, I don't think that maybe worked as well. Because it didn't, but even though I remember, because I was sitting in the theater and I remember Billy Loomis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Loomis. So Sam Loomis from Psycho, he's right. a good guy. Dr. Loomis from Halloween. Favorite who was based on movie Sam. of all time, by the way. I agree, Matt. Oh, <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, absolutely. So, and so, 
I was kind of thinking, would he name him Loomis if he was the killer? But he went for it. So, you know, props to Kevin Williamson. So, and another another really fun name thing is when uh, Tatum and uh, Sydney are talking, and she's like uh, a, a Wes Carpenter movie, which I yeah. thought was really funny. Yeah. Wes Craven is even able to admit that people get them confused. Yeah, yeah. And this film was offered to John Carpenter, and he turned it down. That would have been a totally different movie. Right. <laughs> Coming off of his stuff in oh. the 90s, that would have been very... I'm glad yeah. Wes Craven got this because new night, coming off New Nightmare and doing, going to this is a lot hotter than whatever John Carpenter was doing in 94, 90, you they, know, before then. Yep, they offered it to Wes Craven first. He turned it down. Mm-hmm. Then they went to Robert Rodriguez. That he would have been cool. Down. Even though he mm-hmm. would later do The Faculty with Kevin Williamson, he mm-hmm. turned it down. John Carpenter turned it down, and then Wes Craven went back and called Bob Weinstein and said, hey, is that job still open? <laughs> and once he heard Drew Barrymore was attached, he was like, hey. And so, and so they hired, um, hired Wes Craven. So let, let's talk about the characters. Um, of course, we're now getting ready for Scream 5, which is mm-hmm. filming right now in Wilmington. Uh, Nev Campbell is back. What are your feelings on Nev Campbell as Sydney Prescott? Ricky, you first. I've always been a big Nev Campbell fan. Um, I don't think it would be the same without her. Mm-hmm. I mean, they can switch up the, the rest of the cast kind of all they want to to a certain extent. But, I mean, it's, she's Sydney. You know, she's kind of the reason there is a screen. <laughs> But, yeah, I mean, I'm interested to see what's going to happen there. Um, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to lie, I completely lost interest on four. Um, yeah. But I'm, I have it queued up. I'm re-watching all of them. Um, but I'm, I'm really curious to see how five's going to go. But, yeah, I, I don't think it'll, it would ever be the same without, you know how they, they replace people and things like this? Oh, yeah. I'm really glad they didn't with her. Yeah, I'm trying to think of another horror character that has survived. I mean, you've got Sigourney Weaver as Ripley in the Alien movies. You've got Jamie Lee Curtis as Laurie Strode. But even with Halloween, we kind of get a jump because we get Halloween, depending on which timeline you follow um, with Halloween. You know, we kind of jump all around with Laurie Strode. Wes Craven brought up that he's really was fascinated with seeing Sydney as a teenager, as a college student, and then as a young adult mm-hmm. in Scream One, Two, and Three. So, Jackson, what about you? You, what? How are you on Nev Campbell? I think she's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I really like. She's you can t- she tries to act all fun loving and and kind of quirky, but you could tell that she's hurt inside. Yeah. And uh, like when she's on the phone with the killer and she's, you know, picking, pretending to pick her nose out on the porch and then she's acting all fun. And then he mentions her mother and immediately the switch goes off and and she gets these real angry eyes. And at the end of the movie, whenever she's facing off against Billy and Stu, she's kind of scary. She goes full action hero mode. And she's got those those teary eyes and the blood on her face. And I'm kind of I'd be kind of scared of her because she is like she's out for she's out for blood. And uh, when she goes on the phone, when she's with Billy, I love that line where she goes, you bleeping mama's boy. That's fantastic. 
Exactly. Yep, I love that. And I and I love how she kills Stu when he's like, I've always had a thing for you, Sydney. And she says, in your dreams, and then dumps the right. CRT. That wouldn't work today. I heard somebody say that it wouldn't work today because you have these flat screens that are like three pounds. That wouldn't kill you. But yeah. back then, those things were deadly but weapons. That's right. But I think another, flip, another switch flipped when, I mean, she was angry enough about her mom. And then through the time, she's starting to realize, you know, kind of come to terms with who her mom maybe was and yeah. what kind of surrounded things like that. But then I think it brought it to a, an entirely different level with what happened with her and Billy and apparently what happened with, with Billy's dad and all that, that that happened. I think it just brought it to a whole different level and like, there was a whole different level of anger there yeah. that she just kind of tapped into. And she, I mean, we saw a whole different side of Sid. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I want to talk about a character that initially annoyed me, but now I've grown to love, which is Dewey deputy. Oh, I love, love right. Dewey. I, I agree. That I didn't that like him at first. first. He was to me. He really was, but the funny thing was, in the original script, he was supposed to die. Dewey was supposed to die. But when they got through filming, I think it was scene 180 I think, or 118. I can't remember what it was called. It was the longest night in horror, 21 days shooting right. that, that, that night, that party at the house. Right. Um, Kevin Williamson and Wes Craven, the producers, kind of all looked at each other at the same time and go, oh, Dewey can't die. We cannot kill Dewey. Right. And so you get that last scene they shot actually a day after they were supposed to wrap with Dewey going into the ambulance, holding his thumbs up, showing that he was <laughs> alive. So the lovable, like Barney Fife ish kind yes. of kind of guy. Yes, absolutely. And I, I, absolutely. Heard that, I read that his character was supposed to be more like almost like a buff kind of officer yes. and they kind of like played him down a little bit to make him more lovable kind yes. of. And that was David Arquette's decision because, yeah. you know, he came in to read for Billy or Stu and he was like, I'd rather read for Dewey. And he kind of mm -hmm. went for that and he changed the entire character. And Wes Craven's give him, given him complete props right. for that, you know, and Wes Craven became kind of a godfather to his child and all that kind of stuff. They became right. very, very close. I've said it many times, you know, David Arquette has said, you know, Wes was, you know, he, he was just a prince of a guy. He loved him. And so, you know, they were very, very close. It's, if you look at David Arquette's tweets the day that Wes Craven died, you can see he was clearly heartbroken. I mean, he loved the guy. So, Jackson, what about you with Dewey? I love Dewey. I've always loved Dewey. I, I was never annoyed by him. Uh, I think the thing that endeared me to him is he tries to act adult. And he tries to act mature, but you can tell he's still oh, he's still a boy. He's still a little kid. Like when uh, he goes to the party with Gail and uh, Tatum's like, what is she doing here? And he's like, she's with me. He's like yeah. real excited. And I was like, oh, Dewey. <laughs> I, I like right. Dewey. I've, I've always felt endeared to him. And I'm, I'm glad he survived to be in the sequels. I've always liked David Arquette, just period. I think I think he's really likable. Right. Um, I'm interested in seeing that new documentary they made about him, uh, about his wrestling, his boxing, yes. his, boxing, yeah. his yeah. career in, in, in athletics, basically, which I think would be really funny, just because, like, why would you think you could do that, David? But yeah. <laughs> I, I think he's fun whenever he's on screen. Um, 
And I, I'm glad they went with the lovable type of character rather than just buff, macho, don't right. take no nonsense type yeah, guy. Yeah, and, and it, yeah, because the script was written for like a buff idiot, mm-hmm. and, and so just some muscle guy, and and Arquette wanted to play it differently. But uh, yeah, I I think he's great. So let's talk about the rest of the cast and the characters real quickly. Um, Ricky, you've already brought him up. You know, Jamie Kennedy as Randy, as yeah. the video store nerd who knows all the rules, all that other kind of stuff. That was the guy I, I had worked in a video store as a freshman yeah. in college. That was I could an, immediately connected to that guy. Yeah. I think he was kind of played as like he was targeted as the red herring because he was the, the he was this movie guru geek who was obviously obsessed with all of this and I think they were kind of trying to point the targets toward him like toward the arrows toward him and Mm -hmm. this you know this guy obviously had to do it but he was so cluelessly like the the part where he's in the video store and he's working and everybody's like there's curfew and everybody's trying to get their movies and get out and he starts getting irritated and angry because, you know, you don't know the rules. What's wrong with you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, I mean, he's he doesn't care what other people think. It's just like, this is how it is. And what, you know, I mean, he doesn't even know that people are kind of suspecting him kind of thing. Right. It's just like he obviously has the hots for Sydney and he wants Billy gone. And he's kind of not even aware of anything else. He just knows that. The world's not playing by the horror movie rules, and it's irritating me. <laughs> right, which leads me to my favorite, one of my favorite lines in the movie near the end, where you, where it shows that he totally believes in the rules, where he stands up and goes, I've never been so glad to be a virgin. <laughs> 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 he Every thinks that's what saved me. <laughs> Jackson, what about you? You have to love Randy. He's great. I love Randy and I can definitely relate to him. He's talking about Jamie Lee Curtis and movies and and I love the part where Sydney is going through all the different horror movies and she's like, why is, is Jamie Lee Curtis in all these? Yeah. And, and he's like, well, she's the scream queen. And then he's like, you know, she was nominated for that one. He knows the kind of stuff that us horror fans know. So it's kind of like right. you immediately sympathize with him because he's one of us. Um, right. right. And I never really suspected him. I know there's motive there. He wants to be with Sydney. You know, immediately once Billy suspected, he's like, once since Billy tried to tried to mutilate her, do you think I could get with with Sydney? Uh, but I don't think he he had what it took to be the killer because he's just too gullible and and lovable. Um, and I, I think he is really funny. I love that scene whenever he's telling him the rules. They're all watching Halloween. He's telling him the rules. That's uh, iconic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's true. He's obviously he's watched enough movies to know that that's the truth. Um, but I, I love the fact that Halloween also plays a part. He sets it up perfectly in that scene. But Halloween kind of mirrors what's happening in the re- in the movie during that climax. It's like cuts back and forth between the events in Halloween and the events in Scream. And I think that's really cool. Just I don't know. He he's great. All the stuff concerning him is great. I wish I could work in a video store, but that time has now passed. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. Yeah, I worked in two. And yeah, unfortunately, that time has passed. Those were good times. So, all right. One other character I want to bring up with the cast. 
Gail Weathers. Courtney Cox as Gail Weathers. She, of course, was on Friends, uh-huh. which is a uh, Jackson knows is a sore spot for me <laughs> because the producer was my mentor, and I left when he was doing. He was an associate producer on Major Dad, and two years later, he was the producer of the hottest show in America. <clears throat> but anyway, no regrets. Um, so, but Courtney Cox lobbied for this part because it was against type. She's always been cast going back to family ties and everything else. She's always been cast as a likable, nice girl. She wanted to play the jerk. She wanted to play this part so badly. She played it well. I agree. She played it well. But here's the interesting thing, Ricky. There's a turn with Gail Weathers near the end. Mm Mm-hmm. That, in my opinion, seems to come when she honestly seems to be not just playing Deputy Dewey, but honestly seems to come to like him when she begins to like her. Do you agree? Yes, yes, yes. And you can almost see it like when it's happening. Yeah, yeah, I agree. What about you, Jackson? Yeah, I, I like, I think I like Sassy uh, Gail Weathers better. I like her when she's kind of a jerk. I love the early, first of all, I love the first time we see her, she's in this dirty highlighter colored like mini skirt. Like, what is that yeah. outfit? The 90s were outrageous. <laughs> but um, but I love her interaction with Sydney outside the police station uh, where she's like, how's the book, how's the book going? It would be out, you know, whenever. And she's like, uh, uh, I'll mail you a copy. And then the punch right to the face. Yeah. I yeah. love it when she's the jerk. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I, I think, and, but interestingly, she may just have been right about that whole cotton weary thing. So she's not totally crazy. She's not totally a jerk. She does help out at the end. Right. Um, although she doesn't know when a gun has a safety on. So that, that kind of, uh, right. that kind of put a lot of people's lives in danger, but, but eventually she does, she does kind of save the day. And, um, I like the switch. Absolutely. I definitely like when she started falling for Dewey because he, he liked her from the beginning and he had no idea that she was just using him to get information, but eventually love... his endearing charm kind of won her over. Well, and the fact that they were becoming a real couple, I think adds to the chemistry. Yeah. Don't you Ricky? Right. Yes. My one of my favorite parts of the whole show is where they're one of their first like actual interactions is they're talking back and forth and and he admits that you know he watches her show or whatever and she's like well you do watch my show and you know he's just out of that age range eighteen to twenty four and and he was like you know Miss Weathers I may be twenty five but I was twenty four for a whole year yes you know I mean. Yes. And she's like, you can see her kind of like, even then, I think she's like, you know, maybe this guy isn't such a Barney's wife putz. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. What do you think of the chemistry, Jackson? I think it's great. I, I think the first hint that they're going to be something is when she's talking to him. She's trying to charm him. And she's like, you look like a 14-year-old boy were it not for the upper torso region. And he, <laughs> yeah. he blushes. I love that. I love that part. He's, he's still like, trying well, to be rude. But yeah, yeah. yeah. He's like, well, ma'am, my boyish good looks dictate that uh, and peak muscles, <laughs> you know, to people take me seriously. And I love that. I love their their chemistry. You know, they would both go on to appear in later movies together, and they were married all the way up until 2013. So mm-hmm. that was a long lasting relationship for Hollywood. Um, yep. But yeah, I love I love their chemistry together, and uh, yeah, I'm I'm glad that Dewey's got somebody. Absolutely, absolutely. So now we can move in, unless there's other cast members you want to talk about. I do want to say I think that Rose McGowan 
as Tatum uh, yeah. does a good job because she is, if you know anything about Rose McGowan, um, she's had a pretty rough life. She was a teenage runaway, all that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. And so she said, you know, I, I wasn't popular. I wasn't a cheerleader. I wasn't, you know, I knew who they were, you know, it was just like, so I, I kind of patterned myself off that, but I think she mm-hmm. pulls it off. Don't you Ricky? Right. Oh yeah. Yeah. She was your typical. Yeah. I mean, it's like their little click, their little friend click mm-hmm. is, I mean, it's like the, the perfect little mosh click. It's like kind of the motley crew of, of everything, but yeah, I mean, I think she, she played it very well. And even though it's not her typical, she went on to play some different roles, yeah. and, you know, make some other choices. But I think I always thought she played a really good role with this. Um, but I mean, like the, the garage scene. Oh, that man. garage scene. <laughs> She talks about that. The funny thing was, I was uh, watching her interview. I, I will give her credit. She, you know, not the Hollywood type who sits there and talks about everything she's done right. She said, when she had to throw the beer bottles at Ghostface, yeah, they told her, said, okay, throw it over here to the right of the camera. And she hit the camera lens right Ooh. on the first time, which Wes Craven was not happy about. It's almost broke like a $150,000 camera. Nice. Uh, but she continues to say this was her favorite movie, her favorite filming yeah. experience, that she had a great, great time. Jackson, yeah. what do you think about Rose McGowan as Tatum? I think this is one of her best roles. This and Planet Terror, I think. Yeah. And that's a Rodriguez movie. So they went on to work together. But, um, yeah, I think that yeah, they that, dated each other for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that this is probably her best role, just a little bit better than her. Although you have that iconic imagery of her with a gun leg, which I think is great. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I think she's really good in this and she is a good friend of Sydney to a certain extent. Uh, I think at, at, at some point she, she does kind of, Mm, she's when she st- starts talking about cotton weary and that one scene and is like well yeah. maybe yeah. you're just i was like all right come on Sydney. Yeah. just 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 let sydney you know have a moment let but yeah. but she's but sydney's got to have a friend and i think that she's a pretty good one i also like her per what we see of the relationship with her and Stu when he picks her up throws her uh, over his shoulder and walks around right. first of all that outfit in that scene is totally outrageous what is with the the <laughs> red pants in the oh. Oh, in yeah. the silver jersey again what was the 90s i mean the 80s fashion well period. it was it was that period right like between like grunge and yeah. like limp biscuit kind oh. of it was a different uh, time, jackson yes it was it was that period because like in the early 90s i remember going to college as a freshman and sophomore in college and you had everybody men and women wearing combat boots and, you know, and flannel. And then all of a sudden by mid nineties, you know, it's on the cusp of Kid Rock and Limp Biscuit coming out. And all of a sudden everybody's wearing like this ridiculous, like, you know, just not even, I mean, not even hair metal bands would have worn kind of weirdness. So it was, it was a right. weird time. It was right, Ricky. It was a weird time. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. That's why I said I was watching the movies and I was going, I, I, as I'm watching it, I'm sitting here thinking, I remember the hairstyles. I remember oh. even the slang. I remember the clothes, everything. Yeah. Oh. It was a different time. 
Yeah, it was weird. It was it was really weird. Here's Sorry, the thing. Buddy. We're going to look back on 2020 fashion. That this is what I think. We're going to look back oh, on 2020 fashion 20 years from now and be like, what was going on? Right. But I can't see anything. Like when I'm looking at the fashion of right now, I'm like, what will we look back on and cringe? But we're all into it, buddy. I feel I like almost everything's accepted right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, every era has so come back. Yeah. yeah. Definitely, but but it's so hard when you're in the moment to judge fashion because fashion everybody's wearing it, so you don't think it's bad. But when you look back on it, it's like, oh, what were we thinking? Right. But I'm I'm looking forward to that actually. That that's one of the things I'm looking forward to is growing up and saying, what were we thinking? Looking back on my childhood. Yeah, but, my kids like to see my senior pictures. That's oh yeah, I bet, I bet. Yeah, I I the yeah. the hair the hair in the eighties and. Oh my gosh, so much yeah. hair gel. And the 80s was big, and then the 90s was uh, all greasy. Not all of us wore hair gel in the 80s, but I did have a rat tail. So anyway, oh, uh, I, I had a rat tail in sixth grade, so I will admit to that. Anyway, all right, Jackson, I got to go to you on this. The technical aspects, mm-hmm. um, the cinematography, the editing, you're the aspiring filmmaker. Did you know they fired the director of photography halfway through this? No, I didn't notice any difference. Mark Irwin was the original director of photography. He was fired because they were under so much pressure from the Weinsteins. They shot an entire day in that house, scene 118 or whatever it was, and it was all out of focus. Oh, jeez. Wow. So they, Wes Craven said, I've got to fire your entire crew because we just lost an entire day. And the director of photography said, well, if you fire them, you have to fire me. And Bob Weinstein was on the speakerphone and said, yep, you're gone too. Bye. (laughs) Great. He just talked himself out of a job. Yep. That was one of the things the editor brought that up on one of the documentaries I watched. He was like, you know, if you're threatening that, you better be willing to go through with it. And so, yep, they fired the director of photography and replaced him. Yeah, I don't blame them. That's a big mistake. I mean, when you're in a major motion picture like that, a day's worth of shooting down the drain, that is thousands of dollars wasted. like the Weinsteins on a $15 million budget. Exactly. um, Yeah, you had better get that crap together. And they were completely out of focus. I can't believe that. Yeah, I've done that. I've done that kind of thing, but that's for like YouTube videos. Now imagine that it's other people's money that you're burning by doing that. Oh, man. Yeah, I can imagine. But um, I didn't notice. I, so none of the footage that he shot made it on screen? No, it did. It was just that he lost one day. And that's oh, what all right. Me. All right. Well, I didn't notice any continuity errors with that in that regard, with the technical aspects. I think it looks good all the way through. It's got a really good look to it. Now, there are some parts that looked very, looked very 90s, like in the party scenes. I feel like it looks like every other 90s movie. But... Especially that opening scene. I feel like it's so, like, perfectly... Every single shot has a reason to exist. And yeah. I love it when movies... And watching it on the big screen, you really notice that. You're like, wow, this composition is great. Especially, um, like, whenever you get exteriors of stuff. Especially exteriors of that end farmhouse. It just looks gorgeous. And the color grading and editing, it's just perfect. Yeah, I agree. And, and Wes Craven commented that, like, for example... She's got the, and Ricky, you'll remember this. You and I remember this. I don't know, Jackson, if you know this, but when you would have, that was that time in the 90s when you'd have the blue screen on the TV before you put a videotape in. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so he said, I loved that glow that came from that. And yes. the whole idea, he and Mark Irwin, before he was fired, you know, coming up with that, 
Casey sees the glass as a protector until mm-hmm. they throw the chair through it. And mm-hmm. then it's no barriers. You know, it's it's on. And so, yeah, I agree with you, Jackson. I thought that I thought that all of it, I had no idea till I watched the documentaries that they'd replace the director of photography because I thought it looked really good all the way through. I didn't notice any harsh edits, you know, even though they were kind of in a race to get this movie done, so forth. I thought it looked great. Ricky, what do you think? Do you think it, I think it looks great. I, you know, of course, that's not my thing, but I'll, as you're sitting here talking to Jackson about that, I, I didn't notice anything. Um, I think everything blended together well. I mean, I don't, I think everything looked amazing. Mm-hmm. I think it's Wes Craven's best looking film, honestly, Jackson. I mean, I know that yeah. I thought the people on the stairs looked well. I know he had a big budget for Vampire in Brooklyn, even though that's a piece of crap. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I think it's his best looking movie. Yeah, I yeah, definitely. I would say this. Uh, yeah, it, it's it's his most high quality image quality. It looks really good. But I have a thing for that low budget uh, Hills Have Eyes style filmmaking. I it's know more grungy do. and dirty, like Texas Chainsaw. I love that look of the grody, dirty sixteen millimeter. But then again, this does look really good. It looked really good on blue on uh, the big big screen. I can only imagine how good it would look four K on a big flat screen. Um, but, but yeah, this is probably his best looking movie objectively. And this was, um, Marco Beltrami who did the score. This was his first movie. Mm-hmm. And so Jackson, I'm curious, yeah, you're a musician. What did you think of the score? I love the score to this movie. I hear a lot of people say they don't think it's memorable because it doesn't have that like lead melody that you can sing and it's memorable. It doesn't have the Halloween theme. It's not like the, mm-hmm. the key, 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 ma, ma, ma thing from, from Friday the 13th. But the main theme, which you first hear in the movie when it cuts to the school and all of the news reporters are around it, I think it's really, really good. It's got like a techno industrial sound, kind of like Marilyn Manson. Yeah. But it's also got classic film like strings and, and bells in it, which I think is really cool. There is a weird thing where it does have, it calls back a little bit to that, uh, to the Nutcracker, there's a, there's a couple of Nutcracker cues in it. I don't know if you noticed that. No, if, I did not notice that. I cannot listen, remember a thing about the Nutcracker. If so you ahead. listen to the score alone, there there are literally parts from the Nutcracker in it. That do 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 do. That's in the that's I in the theme for the screen. Oh, but I really hadn't either. Yeah, go that ahead. said, that said, I really love the way it sounds. It perfectly exemplifies the 90s it blends that 80s slasher style with the industrial kind of pop age of the 90s perfectly i really like it and there are classic like strings moments there are classic film score moments that are more conventional like the scene where ghostface is chasing sydney in her house that's more classic uh slasher movie soundtrack but i like the parts that are more unconventional okay well i actually own this soundtrack Ricky, what did you think of the sound? I love the fact that they redid, you know, Don't Fear the Reaper. I love Red Right Hand in it by Nick Cave. What did you think of the soundtrack? Well, I I really, I I agree. I liked it. And I know that they tried real hard to go for the typical, like, American, typical American house, kind of this could happen anywhere kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And I think they kind of hit the nail on the head there because these were, I mean, it wasn't 
placed in a moot or in a, a high school like was promised and then you know you i'm sure you've heard where they backed out at the last yeah. minute and had yeah, to do yeah. that. but like they had to you know i mean it was like the typical high school the typical small town typical this and that and they kind of went along with that basic theme through the whole thing and i i really like this could have happened anywhere this could have happened in you know Idaho that could happen in anywhere but I, I really I agree and and I think the whole 90s thing was mm-hmm. what made it I mean you see oh, your 80s was... flicks you see your, your 70s flicks but yeah I mean I think a lot of the movie or the songs went through with that theme yeah, yeah I've this said well Matthew Lillard actually said he said all the scripts he was reading at the time and the whole thing in Hollywood in 95 when they shot this was we need to make, you know, movies timeless, you know, not, you know, yeah. for right now. So, and and Kevin Williamson was the one kicking against, you know, right. the grain. They're going, nope, we need to make this now. Right. And go ahead. It's just like Friday 13th was a 1979 movie. You know, that, you know, Halloween was a 1978 movie. We need to make this movie as a 1995, 96 movie. And I think it worked well, and the soundtrack Absolutely. reflects that. Yeah. yeah. Jackson, go ahead. Yeah, I think this and I Know What You Did Last Summer are like the perfect like examples yes. of this of that era uh, because of the clothing, which we touched upon, and the music, but also the actors in it because they yeah. are so very of their time. But, uh, yeah, I think, I think that the... the not only the original soundtrack, which was uh, what I was talking about, but yeah, the music choices were really inspired because it seems to me, I don't, I don't know about you, but Red Right Hand kind of foreshadows yeah. the where yes. the plot goes, I feel yeah. like. Uh, which, and if you listen to it, it's, you, if you listen to the lyrics in that scene where uh, they're you know, going into town and the, everybody's closing down for the curfew, it kind of foreshadows what's going to happen. So if you know where it goes, it kind of spoils the movie. But again, it's just like that fountain scene. You have to know where it goes to get that it's a spoiler. Yeah. Yeah, agreed. So, all right, Jackson, I know you take a lot of notes. Ricky mm-hmm. didn't want to take a lot of notes. What else <laughs> have you got that you want to talk about? Uh, let's see. Okay. Here's one thing I wanted to address. So you talked earlier about the scene where, uh, Sydney's in her house and she just woke up from a nap and it's, it's dark and she gets a call from Tatum and she's like, what do you think we should rent? I think we should rent all the right moves. Uh, I refuse to believe anybody in the nineties rented that movie for the reason that Tatum says she's going to rent it. Was anybody really like, Ooh, that's the reason to get this movie. I don't think so. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, Tom Cruise, I've never met him. I've seen him. Tom Cruise is like five foot two. Um, He's a little teeny tiny guy. Um, But he was pretty hot at the time because he had done Few Good Men, The Firm, Interview with a Vampire, Mission Impossible, Jerry Maguire. So. <laughs> yeah, it was back to back. So I don't Jackson, know. Jackson, speaking as a girl around that age, around that time, that was possible. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> there you go. There you go, buddy. Oh man. Uh, so that that kind of that was weird. I, I was like, what a weird detail for them to put in there. Because I'm sure a lot of people didn't even know that they watched Scream and they're like, oh really? <laughs> uh, I don't know what to do with that information. But I also love. 
in an earlier scene, we get Linda Blair in a cameo from yes, the X. Right? Yes. Isn't she was cool? the reporter, and she she makes Gail Weathers look like a legitimate a legitimate journalist because she's yes. so pushy. She <laughs> says, "How did it feel to almost be brutally slaughtered? People deserve to know." Yeah. Oh my gosh, who would say that? Right. Yeah. But that was so fun that they, they are literally referencing every horror movie. I think they mention or reference probably a hundred horror movies in this movie. And that's why it was so great. And it's so great as a meta, meta comedy. Whereas I think Scary Movie was, just took all the subtlety out of it and just put it in the forefront. Right. But of course, um, Linda Blair did that as a favor to Wes Craven because Wes Craven directed her in a TV movie in the 70s. Oh, really? Summer of Fear. Directed by Wes Craven, starring Linda Blair from like 1976, 78, somewhere around there. Yep. I've never heard of it. So only three years after The Exorcist. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. Yep. Well, I I had never heard of it. It was fun seeing her. I don't know that I caught it the first time I watched it. But this time I had to pause and rewind. I was like, that looks like Linda Blair. That's interesting. Um, much she's better in this role than she was in the entirety of The Exorcist 2. I can say that much. <laughs> it doesn't but, say uh, much, but yeah. Yeah. And you, you know, touched. Sorry, go ahead. No, and Jackson, you were talking about how, you know, in that scene where she's talking about renting the movie and stuff. Mm-hmm. It's funny because through the whole movie, Sid is trying, like, I think Tatum's trying to bring Sid out of her shell. She is that kind of like wild friend who is like, listen, you have to move past this. You have to get on with your life. And she's kind of like the the risky friend. She's kind of like, I know you've been through a lot, but you have to kind of, you have to move past this. Here, let's, let's have some fun. Let's be teenagers. Let's do something wild or whatever. So. No, we wouldn't have all rented that movie, but we all love Tom Cruise. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and she does, but she does. Here's the thing I like about, about Tatum. She does respect her intimacy issues with Billy. Right. She's like, you know, you know, screw Billy. You know, you don't need him, which I think was a good friend move. But then again, we talked earlier about, yeah, she, she's kind of, she's a, she's a little bit more adventurous than Sydney is. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So... All right, Jackson, what else you got on your uh, on your note list there, buddy? I have one more thing, which I didn't really get. This is just one little thing. You touched on it, um, but I, I didn't get to say any, the Don't Fear the Reaper acoustic scene whenever Bill yes. Billy, uh, sneaks into Sydney's room. Is that setting up possibly that he could be the killer just because it was in Halloween? I feel like maybe yeah. that was a subtle, just subconscious. Oh, there kind of thing. are all maybe. kinds of allusions to Halloween because Kevin Williamson is a huge Halloween fan. Jamie Lee Curtis said that when she did Halloween H2O, which Kevin Williamson did some ghostwriting on and was an executive producer on, that Jamie Lee said that Kevin went on and on, just gushed about Halloween and says, Halloween and Psycho are his two favorite movies. Yeah. Well, you see, you see just about as much Halloween in this movie as Scream because it's on the TV. You got the music from it playing. Casey's talking about Halloween in the beginning. You did. It talks more about Halloween than Nightmare on Elm Street, which is actually directed by Wes Craven. Well, that's because Dimension owned the Halloween rights at the time. And so, and they were doing. Right, I see. Yep. I see. Uh, that's about all I have. I, I do have a lot of notes, but it's just nothing notes like, oh, look at this. This is funny. And I think we've hit everything uh, big. But yeah, I had so much fun talking about this. Absolutely. And for goodness sake. This is sakes, a classic. Absolutely. Roger Ebert gave a thumbs up to Scream. 
which is rare for him. It's yeah. as far as horror movies go. He gave he Halloween a thumbs. He gave Halloween a thumbs up, and he gave this a thumbs up. So I guess yep. those are the two movies. And Psycho. He loved Psycho. So let's be fair to Roger Ebert, and he loved Dawn of the Dead. So he's got uh, something about knife wielding killers. I think that's what it is. <laughs> this was a huge hit. Uh, more than $100 million on a $15 million budget, which back then, typically, a $15 million production budget meant a $15 million advertising budget, which means it made a $70 million profit for Dimension Film. So, huge hit. It's a classic. Ricky, I'm with you. I'm a little leery about Scream 5, especially because Wes Craven's not attached, which is sad. Because he passed away, but I will go see it, and you probably oh, yeah. will too. Well, here's the thing: if nothing else, yeah. here's the thing about Scream Five. They redeemed it with the cast. I think not only do they have the original cast, the newcomers I think are really good additions. Obviously, they have uh, Roger Jackson coming back to do the voice of the killer, which I thought was cool. But also the newcomers, they've got Jenny, Jenna Ortega, which was in the new Babysitter movie, which I liked her in that movie. They've got Jack Quaid from The Boys, which I'm watching right now on Prime, and he's really good in that. So I think even the new additions that they have are good choices. So I'm looking forward to it, even though uh, the Craven estate is not attached in any way. I I have I have moderately high expectations. All right. All right. We shall see. We shall see. So, all right. It's time to rate and recommend this sucker. So, on a scale from 1 to 10 and whether it is a a an avoid or a rent or a buy. All right. Ricky, you're the guest. Where do you come in on a scale 1 to 10? What do you rate scream? Oh, buy. I mean, absolutely. Oh, it's a buy. So it's a 10 I, for you? A 9 or a 10? What do you what do you rate? It's absolutely 10. 10. Yes. This is a rewatch for me. I mean, I that's one of those that I can watch over and over. Oh, I agree. So, yeah. Jackson, what about you, buddy? For me, I call it a 9.5 and I call oh. it a 5. Here's here's the reason I don't think it's perfect. We touched on the Freddy thing earlier. Studio interference never it always interferes with a with an artist's vision. I don't like that the Freddy thing how how blatant it was. I'm also really not sure why Stu and Billy killed the the principal. I mean, they, maybe they just wanted to get their outfit back from him, uh, like from the students that it was confiscated from. But I don't see much well, of a Kevin Williamson has addressed that in the commentary. Okay. So he said that there was a back and forth about when they first bought the screenplay. Is there no motive or is there a motive? And he went with both. There's a motive with Sydney. There's mm-hmm. not a motive with a, with anyone else. They just want to kill. Okay. I think they're both just kind of twisted and very, very... I think there's a lot of issues going on there. I agree. Absolutely. Sure. But, but here's the thing. My thing was... You know, Stu was so happy about the principal canceling school. I would think that they would have left him alive, that they wouldn't have killed him because he let them off the hook. He let him party. So I don't I'm not really sure why they killed him. I feel like that was just like to buffer up the and the, the kill, the kill count. It's not that big. There aren't that many bodies in this movie. But I, I agree with you on the Freddy thing. I, I, I'm, I'm not with you on the principal thing. I can totally right. see why any high schooler would want to kill their principal. Well, but he's a cool principal. But yes. And again, I think Matthew Lillard's character, while I loved him to death, I think it was established that he wasn't quite 
you know, he might have been a little unhinged. So I yeah, think a little unstable. Yes, that thing he does yeah. with his tongue is really weird. But yeah, so those are, those are my two problems. Um, I totally I, I, I do I do love the reveal. I do like where it goes with the red herring. Not still not really sure how Billy got away with being fake stabbed by Stu and Sydney believing it when she's in the room right there with him. Uh, and that scene where he's trying to, like, make it look like it wasn't him, Stu comes in and stabs him as Ghostface, but it's just corn syrup. Where did Ghostface have the corn syrup? How did he make it look like he was stabbing him convincingly when Sydney was in the room right there with him? And, like, why later didn't she realize that he didn't have any actual stab wounds on him when she was picking Oh, him? come yeah. on. If you go to Savini's school, which if I win the lottery you will go to, that's easy to do. I don't know. I feel like no, like oh, that's easy. Sydney, Sydney's smarter than that. I feel I, like she would have realized something was I up. I will go ahead and humble brag. I was at Camp Crystal Lake, the original Camp Crystal Lake, with Tom Savini. He explained how he did those some of those things. Not that hard. I don't know. Anyways, that's I've called a nine point five. I called a buy. I've seen it twice this week. Um, it used to be on Tubi to stream for free, but it looks like Dimension uh, Films. Their contract ran out with Tubi because the later well, home, Dimension doesn't exist anymore. Well, the, the people that own Dimension now. Yeah, whoever it is, yeah. But uh, because Hellraiser is also owned by the same company, and the later Hellraiser movies, some of them were taken off of Tubi as well. Well, but so was Halloween, but Blumhouse bought True. them out because they were going out of business because the Weinsteins are getting sued to death, as they should. But, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, 9.5, I call it a buy. I definitely recommend it. Though I can't imagine anybody who's listened to this hasn't seen it and own and doesn't own it yeah it's a 10 out of 10 for me i have owned it i like i said i think i saw it in the theater in its initial run three or four times um i owned it on vhs i owned it on dvd i now own it on blu-ray i love this movie it's in my top 10 of all time right. it is actually number 10 oh, absolutely. on my number 10 uh, yep it's number 10 um on my top 10 of all time. I love it. it I, I think it's frigging brilliant. And Scream, you know, rejuvenated horror in the 90s. I mean, it was dead in 96. It was just dead. And Scream brought it back. Um, even if it brought a lot of CW pretty kids in peril, you know, oh, yeah. movies like... You know, that came after like Urban Legend and Valentine and so forth. Not that I oh, hate those boy. movies, but I, uh, I would go so far as to say that a lot of those are bad. Like, I, I know what you did. I, the, I know what you did movies. First one, okay. The rest are just trash. Yeah. The first one is great. Um, but anyway, um, I, I, I love that movie. I love the cast, love the script. But anyway, um, 10 out of 10 in my top 10. Uh, by the way, one of the people who's given you film school advice, Wolfman Josh, loves this movie. Oh, Greg Jackson. Yeah, yeah, I know it. Um, but but then again, the, I, the I, old I, man I love Joel too. loves this movie. I gave it a nine point five out of ten, and it's my favorite horror movie of the '90s. So you can't say I don't love it, but I acknowledge that there are issues with it. It's the best movie in the franchise, I think, and we're going to talk about two, three, and four on later episodes. But it is the best one just because it's the original, and it did so many things right right from the get-go. I do think it has little issues, but it doesn't detract from the whole thing being great. Well, it's not the best horror movie of the '90s. That Silence of the Lambs, which you don't think is a horror movie, but anyway, I think it's a horror I, movie. But but I consider it a different breed. This is a classic exactly, horror movie. That's exactly. more like I a. I think it's like 
completely different. It's all on its own. Oh, yeah, for sure. This is, is like a fun I'm movie. I'm not saying that. It's my number two horror movie of the 90s. And that this includes... is a fun movie. Listen, Scream <laughs> is a fun movie. Silence of the Lambs is a movie you have to mentally prep for. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And which I'm not sure Megan is a big fan of Scream or Editor, but she is a big fan of Silence of the Lambs, aren't you, babe? Mm-hmm. Yeah. She even loves Silence of the Lambs. So... She likes some more serious stuff anyway. She doesn't like a lot of comedy. No, she likes, yeah, she likes more thriller stuff. But anyway, um, all right. That's been our Scream, uh, beginning of our Scream franchise review, which will be carrying on through October. So, Ricky, thank you so much for being on. You've been a, absolutely, you've been a blast. Um, If people want to find you online, where can they find you? I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram, but I'm, I'm mainly on Facebook. Gotcha. So, Jackson, what about you? On Twitter, I'm at Kane underscore Hero12. That's K-A-I-N-E underscore Hero12. Uh, you can find me on Letterboxd and YouTube at Kane Hero. That's one word. Um, having a blast. I put out a, a, a Bava, uh, Bava Marathon video yes. on the Father and Son YouTube yep. channel. So if you haven't seen that yet, check it out. I've had a lot of people giving me crap about my, my listing, like where I put Black Sunday. I won't spoil where I put that. But I may or may not have put Black Sunday underneath uh, uh, Barren Blood, which a lot of people consider one of his worst movies. But anyways, it's my opinion. I had a lot of fun making that video. I had a lot of people reaching out telling me that they enjoyed it. So uh, thank you guys for that. And uh, I've had a lot of fun on this episode. Absolutely. It's been a blast. Can't wait for the rest of Halloween season. You can find me as Pastor Matt R on Twitter. You can find um, this podcast on Father and Son Horror uh, on Twitter, also Father and Son Watch Horror Movies. We have a closed Facebook group. We also have an Instagram page. We don't update the Instagram page that often, but you can jump on the Facebook page and also on Twitter, which is growing, and we've got a growing number of listeners, which we want to um, thank you all for. We have a growing number of Patreons over the last month, and so yes. and they are uh, fueling my movie making. Uh, ventures. I've got a, a thing in production right now, and we're using Patreon funds for that to to get actors and the sets and stuff. So thank you guys for that. You, by the way, if you're a patron, your names are going to be in all of my movies. That is correct. If you're a Patreon, you are helping to put a young man through film school um, to make horror movies, and he knows them well. So it's only $2.50 a month. You can go to patreon.com and search for Father and Son Watch Horror Movies. And we thank all of our Patreons. Um, we're going to have a, one of our Patreons on very soon to talk about Scream 4. Yes, Andy Swan I will be cannot on. wait for that. Yep, who is on one of my favorite episodes, uh, Gateway Horror, with her son, who's also another filmmaker, a young man and a filmmaker. So that yes. was exciting. She is really awesome to talk to. She's a horror fan as well. So can't wait to talk about Scream 4 with her. But we got two more movies before that, and it's yep. going to be a ride. And Amy is a roller derby warrior. That's she is right. not to be messed with. <laughs> um, you do not want to mess with Amy Swan. Uh, one of my goals is when this pandemic is over is for you and I to go to Connecticut and see her uh, do her thing, man. I think yes. we need to get. Yes, you got to see that. We could we can invite all of her listeners. We should just have a meet up there. Let's, let's just do that. that would you be know awesome. what? I agree. That's a good idea. Absolutely. We'll go see. Amy, you know, um, do her thing in roller derby, and then we need to go watch a horror movie together. That would be awesome. 
that would be awesome. All right, buddy. So say goodbye to the good people. Goodbye. And remember Randy's rules. No sinning, because with how bad 2020 is going, this might as well be a horror movie. And you're going to need to play along to survive. <laughs> oh, man. Absolutely. <laughs> Ricky, thank you again for being on. And folks, thanks, thanks for listening. And remember, the family that watches horror together slays together. See ya.